thank you for being here this morning as you're turning to Acts chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, uh, maybe you're like me, you've got a paper and leather Bible like this with ink on it, or if you have a tablet or phone, wherever you've got your Bible, pull up the book of Acts. We're in chapter number 5. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be advancing about five verses this morning as we're going through this book that we started, I think, back at the start of the year in January. Uh, praise the Lord for the great report about the last two days. Uh, praise the Lord that, that God, uh, well, for me anyway, uh, personal praise that uh, God doesn't allow women pastors because I'd be out of a job from what I hear. Apparently, I've got four candidates that are just ready to step right in and kick me to the curb. So, now they did a great job from everything that I heard. Four of the six speakers right here uh, just been training and pouring and digging in the Word of God. And, and that was just installment number one. And I think that's be happening again in a couple of years. So, already getting ready for that. And all of you who volunteered in every, so many different ways, emceeing, again, all of it, set up, take down, uh, prayer, everything. Um, praise the Lord for that. Acts chapter number 5, we're going to try to get through verses 12 through 16 today. So real quickly, here's the background. Here's the setting. Got a brand new church in Jerusalem. The church is just starting in the city of Jerusalem. I'm not going to recap all of the pattern. The church is born in chapter 2, a miracle. God used the apostle Peter to do a great miracle in the name of Jesus, which we believe. We believe in the name of Jesus. Just sang about that. And a lame man was healed, and they preached Uh, to a large crowd, and more thousands got saved, and the church is just growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, thousands and thousands are putting their faith and trust in Christ. But the authorities, the same Jewish leaders that put Jesus to death on the cross, still hate him, and they've told his followers they better not preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. The followers of Christ told them that they will be disobeying, and so they continue to teach and preach in the name of Christ, and God is really blessing the church. So as we're going through this book of Acts, we keep getting these report cards, these pericopes, these paragraphs that give us these snapshots of what the state of the early church was. And so it wasn't that long ago, back in chapter 4, we found that, now let this sink in. Here's a church in Jerusalem that's probably up to like 20,000 people, and now we're getting, no doubt, up to 25,000 or so, easy by the point that we're talking about in these verses this morning. I mean, it's booming from 120. On day one in chapter two, up again, tens of thousands now in the city of Jerusalem have come to Christ. And when they heard this report about persecutions coming their way, they started praying. And and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But one of the report cards was that all the church was unified. They were all unified. They, They loved each other. And they loved the Lord. And they proved their love by being generous to each other. They shared their things. And if anyone had a need, some people would just go sell their property. And they would give the proceeds of that property to the apostles and distribution would be made. Literally, they had no needy people in the early church. And we even had an example of one of the people who sold property named Barnabas. And he sold some property, gave all the proceeds, and that was great. That was one example, no doubt, of many that did that. But then at the start of chapter 5, last week, we had a dark chapter. It's the first one. Really along the way. And there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And we found that they were guilty of four sins. Four sins really stood out in last week's chapter, passage. They were prideful. They were greedy. They were deceptive, hypocrites. And they lied. They were prideful because as all these people are giving all the proceeds of their land, well, they have some land and they go sell their land. 
And they want to be praised as if they gave all as well. The problem was that pride to be praised got coupled with their love for money. So they want to be praised for giving all, but they don't want to give all because they love their money. So they keep a portion and give a portion. And this is all happening within them. But as they present this to the church and the apostles, God reveals to Peter what's happening and ends up their deceptiveness and their hypocrisy of acting like they were giving all, like everyone else who had given all, was not only hypocrisy and pride and greed, it included lying because it appears that they had promised God that they would give all of the proceeds and then they held back some. And then God very quickly, severely, sternly judged sin in the early church by killing this couple on the spot. First Ananias, three hours later his wife came in and she doubled down on the lie. When given an opportunity to repent, she didn't know what had happened to her husband. She repeated the lie. Holy Spirit killed her as well. And so fear has come upon the church like not just reverential awe of God, but a healthy, godly fear of God's displeasure and God's discipline. So that has hovering now over the church, and it's spilling out to people who are not even in the church have heard about what happened to this couple. And wow, the Holy Spirit, these people say he lives in them, and he appears to be judging sin within them. Wow, this is real serious. And so there's a holy reverence has come over the city of Jerusalem in regards to the early church. And that brings us up to today's report card. Look at verse number 12. The first sentence, I think, is where we'll spend a good 40% of today's message. So really catch it. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done. Did you catch it? Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands by the hands of the apostles. So hear that again. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And then we're going to kind of take a little break from that thought. We're going to pick it up in verse 15 and 16 in a moment. We're going to expand that thought, get a little more detail. But notice the end of chapter or verse 12. And they... We're all together in Solomon's portico. So if you'll kind of use your imagination, here's the temple mount. So the temple itself, the building is over on this side. It's a very high, large structure, but it's surrounded by all these courtyards. And the outer courtyard, even Gentiles could go into that. It was the court of the Gentiles. And over on this east side, there was this double row of columns, large columns that was covered by cedar, This is Solomon's portico. This is Solomon's porch. Jesus preached there. This is where Peter preached the sermon in chapter 3 that so many people got saved at. Many got saved out in the streets near the upper room in chapter 2. Chapter 3's message is also in Solomon's portico. And so here's these double row, row of marble columns covered by cedar. Apparently, it could hold thousands of people underneath there. No doubt voice projection and all that. They, they got very strategic. And the church is now all together in Solomon's portico. But they're not just together physically. They're also still united in heart and soul. The King James even renders this. They were in one accord at Solomon's porch. Here, 
They were all together in Solomon's port. So there's many signs and wonders regularly being done by the hands of the, of the apostles being done among the people. The church is all together down at Solomon's portico. We'll talk about what that means. Don't take it literally like all 20, 25,000 of them are always there at the same time. That is not what this is describing. Verse 13. None. So here's another update. As that's happening over in Solomon's portico, none of the rest dared join them. You'll not see it on the screen, but you have your Bible open. You have an advantage. Look back up at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I think that definitely plays in why none of the rest, so if there's the church, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. I'm not going over there, but we hold those people in high esteem. We recognize them. can't miss them. And then the third thought comes this morning out of verse 14. Here's another report card. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. I'll admit, verse 13 and 14 seem like a paradox, like they don't go together. Which is it? Do the rest of the people who are not part of the church, are they staying away and they're not joining? Or are they being added to the Lord? Yes. Yes, both things are possible. Look at verse 15. Let me read 14 again. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, the idea of even to the extent, so that they even carried out the sick. You see how we're already tying back to the beginning of verse 12? So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. we got to get these sick people. Get them out here. Peter goes to the temple. He, he goes here, and he heads that way, and he's going to be passing by. Get them ready. Maybe even the shadow of Peter might fall on these people, and they'll get healed. Verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. Now we're reaching out, as Jesus predicted they would, they would be witnesses to Judea. So people around Judea are starting to come in into the temple area and into the city of Jerusalem. But as they do, they're bringing people. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirit, demon-possessed people. And then we have a final report. And they were all healed. They were all healed. You have many signs and wonders being done here. Some people get this wild idea. Let's try this. And let's start bringing even further out. Let's bring them in. What about these people? Surely, yeah, bring them to. Yeah, but they're down. Bring them on down. And they were all healed. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, it was a very miraculous ministry. The ministry of the early church was a miraculous ministry. I mean, miracles literally are taking place. I told you we'd spend some time in the first sentence. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And we have illustration of that in verses 15 and 16. Why is this happening? You say, well, Jeff, uh, God has a sovereign plan. And it was God's will for this. Absolutely, that is true. And we're going to talk about God's specific purpose for the signs and wonders that are taking place. We're going to talk about that. But here's where I really want to begin this morning. The events in verse 12, though we just have a broad description, please hear 
These are not just random things. These are not just 12 men that decided to have power to perform miracles. These are not random events. This is God doing something very specific. You've got to forgive me if I flavor some the book of Matthew back in to my message this morning. It's not because we've preached on it and, and, and it's still in my mind from a couple of years ago. It's because I'm in Matthew right now in my private reading. And so a couple of weeks ago I read this. Watch. Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember when he said this? He says, if you, he tells his followers, he says, if you will ask, what's that, what will happen? You will receive. Now listen, Jesus is telling his people, if you will ask, you will receive. If you will seek, you'll find. If you will knock, it'll be opened unto you. I remember preaching on that years ago when we were in chapter 7. And it struck me again this week because I just happened to be going into this section here in chapter 5 verse 12 in Acts. And I'm like, there's definitely a correlation. So hear it again. If you'll seek, you'll find. If you will ask, it will be given to you. And if you'll knock, it'll be opened unto you. So what's happening here? These are not random events that are happening in verse number 12. This is none other than God answering the specific prayer of the church in the previous chapter. You got your Bible open? Flip over one page. Go back to chapter 4. You remember when they heard about persecutions coming? They all went to praying. This group went to praying. And what was their prayer? I can't go over all like 11 or 12 verses. Look back at chapter 4, verse 29. Here's their request. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. They're threatening us. Persecution's coming. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they're praying, God, would you keep giving us boldness? Let us not get afraid and stop preaching about Christ. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Do you hear this? Did you catch that? Lord, please, don't let us stop being bold. Give us more boldness to keep preaching. They tell us not to. May we keep preaching. And then, Lord, not just the healing of the lame man. We're asking you for more and more miracles. I remember this thought, and I want you to write it down as the note pops on the screen. God is more willing. This, I'm talking to Jeff this morning. I'm talking to me right now. I've been trying to tell myself this morning, literally one of the songs, well, uh, uh, the second song in the last set, the, the middle song, I was trying to rehearse this thought. God is more willing to answer our prayers than we are to ask Him. That's what's sad. If we ever get that concept, God is more willing. I think God would grab us by the face this morning and say, Listen, you are not praying enough. You're not praying big enough. Do you not understand my power? You're not even touching. You're not even touching the service. These people had the audacity, Lord, we love what happened to the lame man. He had never walked a day in his life. But we want that just to keep happening over and over. God, we want you to do amazing, miraculous things. And God answered their prayer. Jesus says, if you'll ask, you'll receive. If you'll seek, you'll find. If you knock, it'll be open. Well, the early church was asking, and God answered. Notice at the end, I'm going to come back to verse 12, but notice at the end of verse 12, the end, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this across. I'm going to try. So they're not just all together geographically. They're together in their heart and soul. They're united. So what is taking place? 
almost feel like I want to give you time to finish writing that note, but here, here we go. Would you please notice with me a dual desire in the early church? I mean, put yourself back in that time, and what's being described is the evidence of a dual desire, and I hope we get this concept. So here's what's happening. We know from chapter 2 that the early church was meeting in houses. If you have your Bible open, chapter 5, if you want to look and glance at the last verse of chapter, uh, chapter 5, the last verse, that concept is going again. They're going to be meeting from house to house. So think about that. If there are, say, 20,000, 25,000 saved people now in the city of Jerusalem, and they're having house churches, how many people do you think they average in a house church? Your house is no doubt larger than their house. How many people would you be able to get into your house comfortably? Can I just kind of be liberal liberal, and allow house churches maybe average 20 to 25 people? Could you imagine that? 20 to 25 people in that day, that's how many people are gathering over in this house church. In that house church, on an average, some more, some less. I'm just throwing that out. I have no idea. If that's the case, how many house churches are there in Jerusalem? A thousand. If there's 20 to 25 per house church and there's 20 to 25,000 saved people, there's like a thousand. But I got how many apostles? 12. Do you see what's happening? There is no way for the 12 apostles to be making it into the house churches. The dual thing that is happening is the people of God had a desire to be with each other in a small group setting where they get to know each other in fellowship. We're never going to know the 20, 25,000, but boy, I want to get to know some brothers and sisters in Christ. They have that. They long for that, but that by itself is not enough. So they also want to go down to the larger place, the larger area where God's people gather together and worship corporately. Man, I don't know who you are. Praise the Lord. This is awesome. And we get to hear... The guys that are called by the Lord and specially gifted and the apostles are teaching and preaching. I believe the apostles are down at Solomon's portico, not necessarily frequenting the house churches. And the church, again, not all 20. It's my my belief, as I read it this week, I'm kind of picturing, what would this actually look like? Solomon's portico is not going to hold the whole church. But it's almost like the early church just kind of has taken over this one section of the temple. They just took it over. Jesus taught and preached there. Peter preached there. They're told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They said we're not going to listen. They don't listen. They go down there and start teaching. And people, no doubt, before work, they're running by over there. And others work at different times. And I think there's just this constant flow. No doubt, in my mind, the apostles are working on shifts. Hey, Maybe a schedule, or maybe it was unplanned. God's given me something, and this guy goes, and he's preaching, and that guy's healing, and that guy's healing, and just an awesome work of God is taking place. But here's my thought. They wanted both. We live in a time where some people, they love getting together with the big group and worshiping and hearing prepared teaching and preaching. But they don't have a desire to know anybody personally. And so they don't go to any smaller group activities. And then there's this other dynamic where some, they love the intimacy of getting to know brothers and sisters in Christ and hanging out. And they love the small group. In fact, some have kind of twisted things and they made a big deal how the early church didn't have buildings. They didn't have buildings because they were going to be persecuted and they didn't have money for buildings. It's not that they were against buildings. Some have almost like, no, all the church should ever be is just small groups. 
These big organized churches, those, that's wrong and that's sinful and that's totally man-made. I disagree with that. I think it's not an either-or. I think it's a both-and. God wants both, and he doesn't want just one or the other. They wanted both. It was in their heart. Write this down. The early church, the apostles, were straight up told by the leaders in Jerusalem, the same ones who had put Christ to death, they were told not to speak at all in the name of Jesus anymore. And the apostles don't listen a bit. Guys, listen, they not only keep speaking about the name of Jesus, this tells you something about these guys. And it tells you something about the urgency of their message. They not only keep speaking and preaching about Christ, but they pick literally the single most public spot in the whole land of Israel. Well, we're going to disobey you. Well, you better not. It's not like they snuck up to Galilee and started a movement. They went literally right down to Solomon's portico in where the Gentiles could still come in. It kind of got more exclusive as you go further into the temple. They're right there, and they're just kind of setting up shop. And the church is just kind of some coming in and coming out. And the apostles, I believe, are no doubt rotating. Possibly popping in here and there some house churches. But mainly, they're doing their teaching and preaching here. Now, look at verse 12. I wasn't here for the last two day sessions with the ladies. But I'm pretty sure in the process of learning how to study and read the word of God, you probably got this over and over. When you read the Bible, read it slowly. Read it thoughtfully. Put it in context. Read it multiple times. Does that sound familiar? Okay, just, just double check it. You should be hearing that as you're learning. Read it multiple times. Now, we don't have time to keep reading this multiple times, but all you, since you're good Bible students and you're watching at home, look at verse number 12. Read the first sentence. What words stand out to you? Don't say them out loud. Don't say them out loud. Look at verse 12. Read it. Are there any words that are jumping out at you? Well, I read verse 12 a lot of times this week. It's my job. While you were working your job, this was my job. You know what I found? Lots of words in verse 12. A lot of words stood out to me. The word many. Here's what I noticed. The word many tells me it doesn't put the, put the exact number of signs and wonders that are taking place, but it was many. It was numerous. Like it was a lot. So it's very numerous. Another word that stood out to me was this word was regularly being done. Regularly. So that tells us kind of an idea of how frequent. How frequent were these? It didn't just happen in a flurry and never hear from again. It was regular. Oh, regularly. More signs and wonders. Regularly. Miracles. Regularly. I also noticed the words, the apostles. This is important. We're going to come back to this. The apostles are the performers of the miracles. It's not just everybody. Please don't read this passage and say, boy, the early church was a miraculous church and everybody was just performing miracles. No, they were not. As you go through the book of Acts and read through the New Testament, here's what we find. The apostles are the ones performing miracles. There are a couple of exceptions. When we get to chapter 7, Chapter 6, a man named Stephen is going to have miraculous power because he's a big deal in the New Testament. Most people don't realize how big a deal he is. Chapter 8, there's going to be another one of the early deacons who also has the gift of evangelism named Philip. And he's going to break new ground in Samaria. And so he's going to be given power by God, the Holy Spirit within him. The one I can't remember, you're going to have to forgive me. I can't remember if later on if Barnabas performs any miraculous things, or if it was just Paul. We'll find out when we get there. I did not have time to look up. Here's my point. There's a couple of exceptions, but the miracles are being done by the hands of the apostles. And there's a reason for that. 
I noticed the word wonders. What does that tell us? It's not that there's like signs and then there were wonders. Like two, No, it's like the effect on people. This was wondrous. This is amazing. How is this possible? These guys are just fishermen. They were totally blown away. It was wondrous and wonderful to them. And I also noticed this phrase, these things were being done among the people, which tells me the authenticity of the miracles. So the miracles were numerous. The miracles were frequent. The miracles were done by the apostles. The miracles caused the effect of wonder in people, and the miracles were totally authentic. The apostles were not like illusionists who had learned some trickery, and they operated from a stage far away and had some curtains, and the same trained lady got healed over and over. That's not what we're talking about. Oh, come behind the curtain, spin it around, you know, some person with a a baton. That's not what's happening. They're dealing with literally whatever is being brought to them. Totally spontaneous, and God is causing miraculous power. Those are some of the words that stood out to me. But did I miss a word? I just touched on like five words or phrases. Which one did I not really touch on? Did you catch it? The first sentence. I don't know if I've heard it. Look at the third word. Now many signs and wonders. Let's talk about that one for a moment. This is important. What do signs do? We've got a few around here. We've got a few. Signs give information. Signs give direction. Signs can give instruction. Signs provide clarity. We have men's rooms. They're back to men's rooms. Friday and Saturday, the men's rooms were women's rooms. Today, and I think they took the signs down. So, men, you're back to, okay. We have signs telling you where the offices are and where the children's wing are. And that, like, oh, direction, instruction, information. In the Bible, signs point to spiritual truths. So, write this down. The word signs in verse number 12 indicates to us the primary purpose of the miracles. You say, Jeff, the primary purpose is to help all these people. That that is one of the purposes. That's not the main purpose. Signs is the word that indicates the primary purpose of the miracles of the apostles. Jeff, what do you mean? Continue writing. Just as Jesus' miracles served as spiritual signs indicating, pointing to truth, pointing to the specific truth of Jesus' identity... Just as Jesus' miracles pointed to the truth of his true identity, in the same way, the miracles of the apostles also were signs pointing directly to their unique identity. Jesus' miracles points to his totally unique identity, and he is the Son of God. He is the Christ. We know that because of his miracles. And then we look at the miracles of the apostles. There's a reason it was just them. And that's because they are being separated and highlighted and pointed to for their unique identity, their unique position. Now, we may be wondering, what is the apostles' unique identity? And I want to touch that in just a moment. But first, notice the first part of that second sentence. Jesus' miracles served as signs. Do you remember, some of you will remember this. Do you remember when John the Baptist was in prison? Remember he preached against Herod? King Herod's adulterous relationship with his second wife. John the Baptist preached against it, and for his efforts, he got put into prison. 
In Matthew chapter 11, John sends his disciples to go ask Jesus a question. Do you remember the question? Now, here's the thing. John's in prison, and John the Baptist had told everyone that the one who's following him is greater than him. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water. What he's saying is this is merely symbolic. The one who's coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. The Holy Spirit for those who are his people in fire of judgment for those who are not. The one after me is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit in fire. Well, here John is in prison, and Jesus has done neither one of those things. In fact, I'm reading between the lines. John starts hearing Jesus now has one of his followers is a publican tax collector. These were like the lowest of the low people in the land. And he's getting word that Jesus' disciples never fast, and John's disciples fast often. And the Pharisees fast. Jesus and his disciples don't fast. He now has... A, a, a publican is one of his 12 disciples, and he's hearing that Jesus is eating and drinking with other publicans and sinners and hanging out with them and like, what's going on? And so John sends his, his disciples, go ask Jesus this question, are you he who is to come or shall we look for another? Do you remember? So the question, are you him? Jesus says, go tell John, tells his disciples, Go tell John what you see and hear. Go tell him this. The blind receive their sight. The deaf are hearing. The lame are walking. The dead are being raised again to life. And the poor are having good news preached to them. You go tell John that. What's Jesus saying? The answer to your question is yes, I am the one. And the way you will know that I am the one is look at my life and the miracles that I am performing. They are clearly saying my identity. And John was no doubt satisfied with that answer. What do the apostles' miracles say about them? Flip over if you got your Bible. I want you to hit a couple passages. The first one is one verse, so if you don't get there, that's fine. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What do their miracles say about them? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As you're turning there, I'm going to back up to verse 11. You'll see verse 12 on the, on the screen. Paul is writing to a church that he founded, and unfortunately at this point in history, some of the people in the Corinthian church are undermining Paul's authority, and so he's had to brag about himself and show how he's a real apostle. In fact, not on the screen, verse 11 says, I've been a fool. He's fussing at these people. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. Let this sentence, hear this. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. These guys that you see as super apostles. I was not at all inferior to them. Even though I am nothing. Hey, Corinthians. I'm nothing. But I'm not less than the other guys you think are way up here. We're all nothing. And I'm their equal. Now look at verse 12. He's telling the Corinthians. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. With signs and wonders and mighty works. What Paul is saying, when I spent a year and a half there, what you saw were signs and wonders and mighty works. And that was your cue that I am a true apostle. God was revealing to you, this guy is my guy. And Paul's embarrassed. Like, I hate to do this. I'm not trying to brag on myself. What I'm trying to say is my position, because my message is so important, I'm going to have to defend myself. And I will. I'm not behind Peter and Apollos and any of these other guys. I'm not less than them. And we're all nothing. Now leave there. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. We've looked at this. In fact, we looked close to here back at Christmas. 
And this is something, again, these four verses we looked at in Acts chapter 1, but we need to circle back just for a moment. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. This is important. I want you to ask the Lord if what I'm about to say is true, that the Lord would let it strike you as true. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 1, therefore. Those of you who learned how to study the Bible, what do we have to do right here? We got to go back and see what that's there for. Why is that word there? Now, without looking on the screen, if you have your Bible open, you have an advantage. Therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 2, is pointing back to chapter 1, verse 1. So flip back. This is important. The writer of the Hebrews writing to the Jewish people, let me give you a hint. This is the mid-60s A.D., the mid-60s. We're in 2023. That was the 60s, the true 60s. I know some of you lived in what you thought were the 60s. You lived in the 1960s. This is the original 60s. And they weren't hippies. They were just, anyway, unplanned. I get in trouble when I say things I'm not planning on saying. So keep moving. Verse 1. Watch what the writer of the Hebrews in the mid-60s writes. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, here's, here it is. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God, hey Hebrews, Jewish people. Long time ago, in a lot of different ways, God spoke to our fathers Through the prophets. God spoke to the prophets, to our fathers. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Back then, here He is in the 60s, saying back then, God spoke to our original patriarchs. God spoke to them through the prophets. But in the last days, here He is now, 1,500 and some years after that, He's looking back 30 years. So he's in the mid-60s talking about around A.D. 30 to when Jesus lived. But in our time period, God has spoke to us through his son. Do you see what he just did? Prophets, great. Son of God, far greater. You see what he just did? With that in mind, now look at chapter 2. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, and I don't know all of it, all I know is this. In the Old Testament, when Moses, the prophet, received the law and the commandments, angels were involved. So here we are, 1,560 years later, This inspired writer is talking about that. Verse 1 again. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. That was reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. It happened just like God said it would. How? If that happened then. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What is he pitting side by side? Not pitting against. What is he putting side by side? I wonder if anybody's 
tracking this. He's saying, I'm comparing this and this. What's he comparing, ultimately? Law and grace? So, something delivered by angels, something delivered by the Son of God himself? Let me go further. If that all came true, how shall we escape in this time period if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first to us by the Lord, and it was attested to us. He's talking about what's happening in his lifetime. It was attested to us by those who heard. Do you, are y'all starting to see why I'm at this passage now? Because we're talking about the miracles of the apostles. Jeff, what, where are you going? Do you see it in verse 3? It was declared. So what we, there's that. There's that, what they got. Now let's talk about this, what we got that was brought to us by the Son. It was first declared to us by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Who's he talking about? The apostles. Verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What's he say? We got this salvation in the Old Testament. It was real. It was legit. Everything that God gave through the prophets to the patriarchs is real. But all they had was this like shadowy stuff, this symbolic. They had this, these are the rules. Here's the commandments. We broke them. We're in big trouble. But he gave us this sacrificial system that was only symbolic and pointing to one who is to come. But they didn't know all the details. What I've just crossed over to, if, if, if you were with us in the book of Matthew, now we've crossed over to why John the Baptist is said to be greater than any of the Old Testament prophets. Because Don, John doesn't just say, oh, he's coming, he's coming. They all said, you got to do these sacrifices. Not that animal blood is going to save any sin. It's not even going to cover officially any sin. It's all pointing to this ultimate Lamb of God that's coming in the future. And John is greater than any of them because John just doesn't say, He's coming, He's coming. He says, He's Him, Him. Right there, that's the Lamb of God. So it got real clear. And now we have the followers of Jesus who, at the end of verse 3, heard. And they have been, God bore witness of them. Verse 4, by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So Jeff, what does that mean? Be, be real clear. What the writer of Hebrews has done is just put two things side by side. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great sin? If we know not just one's coming, we know his name is Jesus and we know all the details. He died on a cross and his cross death was sin-bearing and it was enough to satisfy God's demand to punish all sin and God proved it by resurrecting him from the dead. If God held those people accountable for their knowledge of the shadows, do you think he's going to let you slide if you just neglect this clear presentation of the gospel centered on Christ that we now know all the details of thanks to the apostles? We ought to be paying much closer attention. Scripture's words are not mine. 
to the New Testament. You say, Jeff, are you up there bashing the Old Testament? No. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do not hear what I'm not saying. How much of this book is inspired? All of it. How much of this book is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness? All of it. All of it is inspired. All of it is profitable. Some is more profitable. New Testament outranks the Old Testament. It just does. You ought to give a lot of attention to the Old Testament. But you ought to give much closer attention to the New Testament. And some of you are like, I don't think I like this guy. My favorite book is, hey, I love that's your favorite book. Have you read Ephesians and Romans? You tried those on yet? Pretty good. I got to move. Back to Acts. Now we're sticking in Acts, Lord willing, the rest of the time. Back to chapter 5. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. How are they getting saved? This is important. These people are getting saved because they're believing the gospel of Jesus. But it's the gospel of Jesus declared by the apostles. Jesus is off the scene now. They're hearing the gospels through the apostles. This is why these signs and wonders are important. This was God's way of saying, hey, 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 these are my guys. These are the ones I sent. Here's how you know that they're the ones. I'm giving them this miraculous power. Yes, it's helping people. Praise the Lord, it's helping people. But the main thing it's doing is it's pointing you. So Jeff, you said a while ago, what is the apostles' true identity? Write this down. Since the apostles lived at a time period where so much new revelation was being given... God allowed them to perform miracles, them, not just everybody, but them to perform miracles so that people who otherwise would not listen to a thing fishermen have to say, now all of a sudden those miracles are validating these 12 men, and I'm, off, I'm comfortable saying it, they are, the miracles are validating the apostles as God's most authoritative messengers. And they are still God's most authoritative messengers. Been a lot of great preachers and teachers in the last 2,000 years. But God's most authoritative messengers are the apostles. Jeff, what do you mean? Today, we don't identify someone as being the true messenger of God because they're able to perform sensational things and have sensational gifts. And man, they're charismatic. And look, they did some powerful thing. That's not how you identify God's true messengers today. The way you identify... And recognize God's true messengers today is very simple. How does their message align with the message of the completed New Testament that was written by the apostles? That's your test. So what God's doing in Acts 5 is very important. We know God's people because they follow the teaching of the apostles. Because they learned it from Jesus himself. And the very spirit of Christ in them would teach them even after he was Ascended to the right hand of God. One last thought, and we're going to quickly hit our second point this morning. One last thought. Verse 15, 16. Let me read it. I'm not going to spend long. Look at verse 15. So many signs and wonders regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, by the hands. Verse 15. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let me see if I can, I'm, I'm going to do one more Matthew reference, I think, right? Sorry, it's just when I read stuff in private and it matches where, where I'm studying, it spills over. I hope I'm not forcing it. Where are these miracles happening? Solomon's portico in the temple. How is it happening? Through the apostles by their hands. Could you rewind in your mind? Go back in your mind. Again, back to Matthew. Jesus is coming down from the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapter 8 of Matthew. There was a leper who came up to Christ. And the leper, it's the leper. They're contagious. They have to live separate from everybody. This leper comes up and says to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. If you wanted to, you could make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. Translation, you're right. If I willed it, I can heal you. It just so happens I do will it. And then Jesus touched the guy. Like you're supposed to be contaminated if you touch a leper. Jesus didn't worry about that. He's Jesus. He touched the leper and he was healed. But do you remember what happened right after that? They're moving along further. Lepers healed. All of a sudden here come some messengers from a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And this man has a servant that is dying. And he asked Jesus to heal his servant. And so... Jesus agrees, I will heal his servant. And he starts heading toward the person's house. But the centurion sent another messenger, please don't come to my house. I'm not worthy of you coming to my house. Please don't come. You're you. I'm me. No, don't come to my house. But the Gentile says, you don't need to come to my house. All you have to do is say the word from a distance. right where you're. If you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. Jesus turns and says to the Jews, I've not found faith like that anywhere in all the land of Israel. This man, he doesn't just think I have to come and put my hands. He says, I just say the word. And Jesus said the word. And they did the time and the servant was healed. It matched when Jesus said it. That's great faith. That's great, Jeff. That's Jesus and Matthew. What does that have to do with Acts? I think this is what's happening in verses 15, 16, and 12. The apostles are healing in the temple. And somebody gets a bright idea. Do you think we always have to keep taking everybody up there? And what about these other people? They're demon-possessed. They're not allowed to go in the temple. And these people have such a condition. There's a reason the lame man, he had to lay at the gate that went right as it was going into the temple officially. He was out there in the Gentiles' courtyard. But I'll tell you what I believe. I don't think the power of healing has anything to do with the temple. I think it has to do with the Holy Spirit in these guys. I believe we can just bring the sick people and lay them out in cots and mats and just the shadow of Peter walking by will heal them. And all these people in the surrounding areas, bring even the demon-possessed people. I believe that it, it's not attached to that place. And I, I believe it will reach people who are not even allowed to go in the temple. And sure enough, it worked. I will admit to you, and you may disagree with me on this. You see verse 15, probably, I think most of the people that I read after this week... Do you see verse 15? So they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on something. Most commentaries that I've read think that was just a superstition. I don't fall there. It's me personally. I'm not going to split and break fellowship with anybody over that. We don't know for sure. I don't believe that was superstitious. You say, Jeff, you seriously think Peter's shadow? I... The way I read 15 and 16, it seems like one continuous thought is being 
spelled out, and here's how it ends. And they were all healed. A woman had enough faith if I just touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Again, Lord, you don't even need to say the word. Jesus tells his apostles, you're going to do greater works than these than I do. I believe this comes under that category. You say, I'm still not buying. I just don't think the shadow of Peter right over there, the shadow is going to heal anybody. Well, in Acts chapter 19, when we get to Ephesus, some sweat rags and aprons that have been on Paul's body are going to be sent to people, and they're going to touch them, and they're going to be healed. So you take it how you want. I don't think this is superstitious. I think this was a miraculous ministry. Number two. Verse 13, not only was it a miraculous ministry, it was a very valued ministry. Valued. Very valued. Look at verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So, full disclosure, there's a couple of ways. Some people read that differently, and some of you may read it this way. And that's fine. You can read it incorrectly if you want. <laughs> no, okay, I'm just serious. Um, verse 13, here's how some people, none of the rest dare join them. Some people read that as, back to verse 12, they, the apostles, were all together down at Solomon's portico. The apostles are all together, the 12 of them, and everybody else is staying away from the apostles. Well, to me, that doesn't match the miracles being in among the people. And some would say, they and the people and the rest, again, this is the church, afraid to go associate with the apostles. I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's being described, the church is all together down at Solomon's portico, and the rest represent the other Jews who were not yet saved. They've not yet put their faith and trust in Christ. Quickly look again at 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Would you ask the Lord to speak to you personally in this second point? Right now, just like, you don't have to close your eyes. Lord, show me what you have for me in this second point. It appears that while Christ's followers are meeting down at Solomon's portico, this is their spot, they've taken it over, unsaved Jews refuse to associate with them. Why? I believe it boils down to two words. Maybe some as simple as conviction. I just don't believe what they believe. I just don't see a man being the special one. Uh, there's a lot, but man, that guy was crucified, and that just doesn't really match my theology. Okay, maybe it's a conviction. The other, I believe the dominant reason they didn't go join in with him is the cost. Cost. They see what's coming. I'm not going over there because those people are getting ready to get the hammer dropped on them, and they don't even know it. You say, Jeff, when is this persecution coming? Next week's two verses that kick it off. We're finishing with 16, right? Do you see 17? The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. I believe some of these people, they're not yet believers, like, no. That will cost them physically persecution. Oh, the, the hammer's going to drop heavy in chapter 8, and this guy named Saul of Tarsus is going to be killing a lot of these people who are down there meeting. And some of the Jews are like, no, Persecution's coming, and it's going to cost you financially when your businesses go kaput because you're following this Jesus. You know the authorities are against him, not going over there. And 
I think they're also afraid because of Ananias and Sapphira. I believe there's a whole dynamic. Some of them will be like, I don't know that I want to ever join something like that. These people say they have the Holy Spirit actually living. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be over there in the temple over there. These people say they've got the Holy Spirit. Apparently this couple lied and deceived. And they were prideful and greedy and they got killed. I don't know that I, I just don't think I can live up to that. I'm not ready to become a Christian because I just, it, it, it's going to cost too much, even inwardly. And so they're, by the way, there are still people today who the main reason they do not trust Christ is because they're afraid of the cost. Wow, if I do that, then God will expect my life to change. He may even try to change me, and I may have to give that up, and God may take that away. Yep. You're going to hold on to that and give up eternity with Christ? Listen, I'm not saying you give up your sin to get saved. What I'm saying is if you really get saved, plan on your life changing. And some people just don't want that. Write this down, but there's another dynamic. Back then, and I find the same dynamic that is happening now. It's then and now. There were and there are some people who, though they are not believers, are still grateful for the followers of Christ. They're grateful. They're thankful. The text doesn't say why they esteemed them highly. They held them in high esteem. It doesn't say why. I'm going to throw out three possible reasons. Number one, write it down. Some people esteem Christians highly if for no other reason for the charitable benefits that a lot of Christians provide. A lot of Christians provide material help. Physical help to people. Here, are you a Christian? No, I'm not. So you dislike Christians? No, actually, I appreciate Christians. They help my such and such relative. Or they, they helped me one time. No, these people come through every third Saturday. What are you talking about? I love those people. Are you one of them? I'm not one, but man, I love them. They're good to me. Well, of course, they're looking at this. They're relatives, and they're seeing people actually get healed. Man, we hold them in high esteem. I'm just not going over there. Second reason, some people... By the way, I know that we're living in a country that is growing in hostility toward Christianity, but there's still some people in our land that have a lick of sense, and they know enough for this. I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved, but I tell you what, I'm thankful for Christians because when Christians live like Christians, their very lives serve as spiritual salt that preserves and holds back corruption in society. And so there are some people, they value Christians because, man, just, just their presence makes a difference and holds things. And again, I'm not talking about when Christians are obnoxious and arrogant. But I'm talking about when Christians live like Christians, Jesus says our lives serve as salt of the world. And we are holding. You do not want to live on a planet where there are no Christians. But I think there's a third dynamic. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Could it be this third thought? Though these people did not yet trust Christ, they still appreciated the followers of Christ. Now hear it first. Listen. Because these followers of Christ lived the way people should live if they really believe what they said they believed. Write that down. I believe, here's these, they're not saved but they highly esteem Christians. They're not a Christian, but they highly esteem them. And I believe it's because they're looking at this group of Christians, and it's like, I'll say one thing about them. Those people truly live like they believe what they say they believe. Go something like this. 
If I'm an unsaved person, this is what I would say to a person, maybe you, that claims to be a Christian. If you truly believe Jesus is the Lord, like we sang about, the Son of God, if you truly, I mean, you really in your heart, you believe He has risen from the dead. If you truly believe there is only heaven or hell and everyone will go to one or the other, and the only way to go to heaven and the only way to escape hell is through Jesus, if you really believe He is the only way to heaven and the only way to escape hell, then I would expect you to live very different than we do. And I would expect you to live urgently devoted to telling everyone else that message. Now, I'm not one of you. But if you really believe that, I'd expect you to live urgently devoted. I think that's what they saw. And they had like, held them in high esteem. So here's what I wonder, right before we go to the last point today. Is this dynamic still true today? Is this dynamic true of you? Got some students in here. If you're a student and where you go to school, if there are unsaved people in your school, is your life so different that, number one, they know you're different? Do they even know you're a Christian? Those of you that work, you have a job somewhere. Those of us who work, I work in a Christian environment. I work here, by the way. (laughs) Those of you that work surrounded by unsaved people, I've got to ask you. Do they know you're a Christian? Is your life such that they can't help but notice you over there? Do they hold you in high esteem? If you're around family and you're like, Jeff, in my family, most of them are unsaved. Do they know you're a Christian? Do they know that you're different? Do your neighbors, are your neighbors mostly unsaved? Do they know that you're a Christian? Would the unsaved people around you, you who say you're a Christian, would they say of you, tell you what, she's a blessing. Oh, so you're a Christian? I'm not a Christian. She's a blessing. He, he's a good man. I'll tell you that. He's a good man. Would they say of you, would your unsafe teacher say, I'll tell you what, I'm not a Christian, but I wish every one of my students was like so-and-so. Would they say, I wish all my employees was like so-and-so. I give, give me a whole shift of people like so-and-so. I'll take them all day long. Is your life like salt and light? Do they see, like, I'll tell you what, I'm not one of them. I don't believe all that they believe, but I'll tell you this, they believe what they believe, and they live like they believe it. Would they say this of you? I'll tell you what, I'm not a Christian, but if I were to ever become one, I'd want to be one like old so-and-so. Insert your name. It was a valued ministry. Number three, verse 14. It was a growing ministry. It was a growing ministry. i got three separate thoughts here. Here's the first one. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So which is it? Both of these dynamics were happening. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So here's what's striking. Watch. Sin has just been dealt with in the church very firmly and swiftly by God. Sin was dealt with in the church. You know, there are some people today, they believe you cannot take a stand against sin or you'll have nobody come. A lot of churches. Everything is so seeker-sensitive and so seeker-friendly. I didn't see the video, but I heard about 
one church somewhere, some transformation, something, not in any long way, far away. Apparently, I mean, just some vile, crazy, blasphemous stuff on Easter. And they think they led people to Christ through it. Now, you can't take a stand against sin. Nobody will come. God had just judged sin in the early church, and persecution's on the way. It's the next verses. Write it down. But neither one of those two dynamics hindered true believers from coming to Christ. Neither, neither dynamic. Neither one of those things. True believers kept coming. In fact, William Barclay writes, Men will always throng to a church wherein men's lives are changed. People's lives were changing. They're coming in by the multitudes. Multitudes of men and women more than ever. Yeah, but what about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and all the fear? It's not stopping true believers. What about persecutions coming? They've got to see them gathering around and getting information and taking names and making their list and they're getting ready to come. Yep, it's not stopping true believers. Again, lives are being changed. I've said something before. I'll say it again. Ladies and gentlemen, our greatest advertisement is change lives. Results. If somebody intentionally starts losing a lot of weight around you, you know what people start doing? What diet are you on? Results. If you start looking all buff, why in the world? i got a personal trainer. Personal trainer. What's their name? And then you find out three or four. That person. uh, Results. Hold on. How did your money that you invested go from what you had so it's grown by 20, 25, 30%. Well, I invested in this. Can I get in on that? Well, yeah, still out there. Wow. Results are our best advertisement. I don't know what that popping is. Second thought. And this one, I'm going to try to say it. I, I don't know. I hope you get it. I'm going to say it nicely, but it's important. It actually fits here. Ivor Powell writes, so if you got your Bible, flip back to chapter 2. So you see what he's talking about. Flip back to chapter 2. You got your Bible. Ivor Powell, speaking about verse 14 in chapter 5, writes the following. He says, Acts 2, 47. See it there? Praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the Lord and the Lord added to their number. So there's the idea. The Lord added to their number. Now you go back to chapter 5. Look at verse 14. And more than ever believers were added to the Lord. The Lord added to their number. And now more than ever people were added to the Lord. Listen to what Powell writes. You're going to have to pay attention. Again, most of you will get it. I want you to get the nuances and the subtleties. Quote, Acts 2.47, 2.47 speaks of the Lord adding to the church. Here, chapter 5, we have people being added to the Lord. Chapter 2, the Lord's adding to the church. Chapter 5. People are being added to the Lord. Added to the church, adding to the Lord. Added to the church, added to the Lord. What do these phrases mean? What did it mean when people were being added to the church? Means they were getting saved. What does it mean that people are being added to the Lord? Means people were getting saved. He writes, Within the New Testament church, 
These terms were synonymous. To belong to the one meant automatic inclusion in the other. What does that mean? To belong to the church, the New Testament church. Why you belong to the church? Because I belong to the Lord. To belong to the Lord, you belong to the church. One and the same. If you're in one, you're included in the other. Did everybody get that? To belong to the Lord, you belong to the church. To belong to the church, it's because you belong to the Lord. He continues, unfortunately, today there appears to be a difference. People are often added to the church today who have little, if any, love for Christ. And almost as disturbing as that, not quite, almost, Occasionally, others who profess to love the Savior refuse to be identified with any assembly of believers. Read that line again. Unfortunately, today there appears to be a difference. People are often added to the church who have little, if any, love for Christ. And occasionally, others who profess to love the Savior refuse to be identified with any assembly of believers. Did you catch the two things? Doesn't match the New Testament. Dynamic one, you got unsaved people becoming members of churches. And you got supposedly saved people not united with churches. What in the world? So, Jeff, where do we stand on those things? So, I want to make a couple of things clear. I'm going quickly, but you got to get them. Anyone, anyone with sincere and respectful intentions. What I mean by that? Anyone. Hey, I just want to let you know you got somebody coming down your church. Yeah? Been coming the last few weeks. Yeah? They take drugs. Oh, okay. All right. Hey, hey, hey. So and so come to your church now? Oh, yeah. I think I met them today. They're a drunk. Oh, really? Hey. So-and-so living in adultery. So-and-so, nasty mouth, blasphemer. Oh. Well, you do know that you've described problems that pretty much most of our congregation struggled with before we came to Christ. We're experienced in those things. It'll be okay. Anyone... With sincere and respectful intent. Now, if somebody's coming in here to commit sin, want to stir up trouble, not welcome. Go somewhere else. But I mean, anyone with sincere and respectful intentions are welcome. In fact, they're even encouraged to attend the gatherings of God's people. Here, you may find some churches, and there are some churches. They don't want you there. Come here. You are welcome, and you are encouraged. You're not just welcome, you're encouraged to come here. But please understand, verse 13 is one of the many places in the Bible that illustrates there is a clear distinction between those who are Christ's by faith and declaration and those who aren't. Just know that there is a distinction. You are welcome to come. We encourage you to come. If you come, you say, well, I'm not yet a Christian. I'm kind of these the rest. You're welcome to come. And I hope as you come, you're like, they really don't mind me coming. In fact... They act like they like me coming. I hope that's what you... In fact, I don't know how, but a couple of them act like they love me. 
And, but let me put your mind at rest. If you ever think this, they're nice to me. They welcome me, and they know I'm not even one of them yet, but they love me. But you know what I think? Sometimes I get the impression they're trying to convert me. Well, let me, let me put your mind at ease. We are. There's no doubt about it. We are absolutely trying to convert you. We are so strongly believing in what we have, we want you to get it. And you say, how would that happen? In a definite, clear moment of time, a moment, that's important, it's not this, oh, I've been a Christian all my life nonsense. That'd be like me saying I've been married to Deanna all my life. No, there was a moment in June of 1991 I made a vow to her. There was a moment in 1979 I became a Christian. What we would love to happen, and yes, we are trying to convert you and convince you that in a moment of time you will become one of us by confessing your sins and receiving the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as the payment for your sin and just receiving Him by faith as your Lord and your Savior. Yeah, we are after that. We're all about that. We want to see you come. But we're not going to have unsaved people become members. Next to the last quick thought. Again, Powell writes the following the other problem is occasionally others who profess to love the Savior refuse to be identified with any assembly of believers. If you're a true Christian, maybe you're watching online live or you're watching this by recording or maybe, again, I, I promise you guys I have no one in mind. And there's lots of answers to this, but I'm going to just mention one. If you're a true believer in Jesus, but you do not belong to a church... Why not? Why not? A true believer living isolated from other believers in a local assembly, that's a foreign concept to the New Testament. Why not? Here's a common answer. It's not the only. There's lots of reasons. Here's one. I used to go to church, and a person down there or a group of people did me wrong, and they did something really bad, and it hurt me a lot. Can I just mention, that probably did happen because we're human beings. All I would ask, did you try to get it right with them? If you're looking for a perfect church where that's never going to happen, you're not going to find it. But are you going to let that stop you? Can I ask this as nicely as I can? Is it time... To stop expecting more of other people than you expect of yourself. Because, yes, somebody did you wrong. You've done other people wrong. It's called sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. You've done other people wrong. Isn't it time to stop pouting and link up with a local body of Christ that preaches and teaches the Word of God and strives to live it out? We do it very imperfectly. But we try to fulfill the Great Commission. Isn't it time? Yes, it is time, Jeff. Last thought. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Write this down. All genuine growth in a ministry is due to God's grace. All genuine growth 
is due to God's grace. What you're reading, that is a a miraculous statement. Verse 14 is far greater than verse 12. Many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. That is awesome. Verse 14 is far greater because it has a far more lasting effect. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Here's what I want us to get, Grace Fear. Here's what we've got to understand. All genuine, true growth is directly owed and due to the grace of God. Jeff, what do you mean? We are totally reliant on God to provide spiritual understanding of His Word. Say it again. You can present the gospel perfectly to somebody, but when it's all said and done, we are totally reliant on God to to open people's eyes and ears spiritually for them to see and understand spiritual truth. And that's not all. We're relying on God to provide the gift of repentance and a surrendered will to actually follow Christ. Both of those things have to come together, and you can't force either one. I was reminded of that this week. Oh, how I was reminded of that this week. I'm going to switch this cord this week. This week culminated with me spending... I'm going to stand still. This week after spending about a dozen hours with someone... I mean the best I knew how I presented the gospel over six weeks. And it got down to the moment of decision. And I was hoping they were tracking. And they said they were tracking. Said they were understanding grace. But when it got down to the moment of decision, and we looked at Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And I said, so-and-so, if faith is responding as if God is telling the truth and God says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, then what would you do? This person's admittedly lost. They couldn't get it. Repeated it over and over. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If you were to respond like God's telling the truth and God says everyone who calls, I save them, then what would you do? I'm hoping he would say, I'd call on the Lord. I ultimately said, if you really believe what you say you do, then you'll call on the Lord. You say, well, did they call on the Lord? Nope. After 12 hours, why didn't they call on the Lord? Because they said they know that as soon as they leave, they're going to go smoke a cigar. What? I know I'm going to go smoke a cigar. I said, what does that have to do with this? Do you know what that tells me? They didn't get grace. What they heard was, I can call on the Lord when I quit smoking cigars. We're totally reliant, totally reliant on God to open people's eyes. So verse 14 is just the grace of God. What is this? It's driving me nuts. It's got to be driving you nuts. Let me try it last little time. It's the grace of God, but would you notice the kind of church God uses in chapter 5? 
We want multitudes coming to Christ. But that happens when God determines it to happen. The wind blows where it wishes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws people to Christ where He wants and when God sovereignly wants that to happen. We can't force it. There's no magic formula. God does that. But I will say this. The kind of church that God was doing that in is a church that was united, praying, pure, loving, and speaking the word of God faithfully, clearly, and powerfully through the Holy Spirit. He does it when he wants. It's his grace, but he does it, in this case, through a church that was pure and loving and united and praying and powerfully indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit. Are we that? Are we that? Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Well, it's not the jacket. Uh, I'm, I'm done. God answered their specific prayers. Are we praying? Answer that yourself just before I pray. Have you been praying to the Lord? If you say yes, then what have you been praying? He says, if we'll ask and seek and knock, we'll receive, we'll find. The early church saw some amazing things because they asked for some amazing things. God's more willing to answer our prayers than we are to ask Him. Christian, is your life so different that unsaved people around you, they notice the difference? And would they say of you, tell you what, I'm not one of them, but that Christian there, boy, they really live what they say they believe. They live it. Is your life like salt making people thirsty for Christ? If you're here this morning and you say, Jeff, I'm a true Christian, but I'm not affiliated with the body of believers. I'd love to do that. In fact, what would it take to unite with this body of believers? Well, I'm glad you asked. Be looking over the next few weeks. In the month of June, we'll be having some classes. And if you are not currently aligned, linked up, serving with a faith family, a local faith family. That's the model in the New Testament. If that's not been you, then come. Plan on attending those classes. We'll have two or three of them. They'll be in the month of June. Be listening for that to come. And then lastly, this morning, if you're here and you've been afraid, you've stood at a a distance and you have watched what's going on among God's people, but you dare not join But this morning, you feel the Lord calling you, and it's like, I can't wait. I don't want to take the chance of going into eternity without Christ. I'm ready to become Christ and unite with His people. Then why don't you just right now, I mean, right now, where you're at, confess your sins to Him. Just confess your sins. Talk to God. Confess. And then tell Him that you know He will save you if you ask Him, and then ask Him. Believe he'll save you. Believe he'll do it. Don't ask if you don't believe it. But when you believe he will do it, go ahead and get saved right now. 
confess, God, I'm a sinner. Lord, you know I'm a sinner. And I'm not denying that. I agree that I'm a sinner. And then ask him. But Lord, you promised if I call on the name of the Lord Jesus that I'll be saved. So I'm asking. God, I'm asking you and I know you will do it. You said you would. I'm asking you to save me from my sins. I res- right now, talk to God. Tell him, God, I receive your salvation at this moment of time. Father, thank you for the word of God and these verses this morning and what we've learned. Lord, I pray that you would stir up our people to pray very specifically and faithfully, bigger than we ever have. Lord, I pray that you would give us a powerful, powerful ministry. Lord, I pray that even the unsaved, not just us corporately, but us individually as we go out into our community, the unsaved, that we go live among, that they would look at our lives and say, wow, I esteem them highly. They are valuable. They are a blessing. They are an asset. I wish others were like them. And Lord, use our lives to make them thirsty. And then, Father, I pray in your grace, would you please multiply your people here at Graceview. By your grace, we do not make demands. We don't have a little formula. We can't work it up. We can't make people see and surrender. So we're totally relying upon you. But, Lord, I pray that in the meantime, we would be busy worshiping and uniting and praying and getting rid of sin in our lives and declaring faithfully your word, putting all the results at your hands. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week. Volunteer, BBS Wednesday. BBS Wednesday.